0: vaccines have become like the preferred tool to deal with so many global health issues and I think this is a trend that will assuming nothing changes, that will continue to expand in the future. But at the same time it's one of the first areas where you have the creation of these partnerships, where you have more and more state and non-state actors and mixtures of money coming from the private sector and the public sector often with a view to making money I mean obviously this merger of donations with public money is not new in public health. What is new is that they are blended together with a view to making a profit, and that is new in global health.
1: Welcome to SkaS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea, and in this episode I talk to Valbona Musaka, Associate Professor at the Department of Economic History at Uppsala University, and Senior Global Horizons Fellow here at SCAS during this academic year 2022-2023. Prior to coming to Uppsala, she was a Reader in International Political Economy at King's College London, and she has also worked at the University of Sheffield and the University of Southampton, and held a number of visiting positions in India and Brazil. Her work focuses on the material and discursive underpinnings and consequences of the knowledge economy as a particular socio political economic formation. Some of the themes explored are related to the governance of perhaps the most central institution that enables the circulation of knowledge as commodity and capital, namely intellectual property. During her stay at SCAS, Valborna will focus on how the ongoing financialization of global health has conditioned the development, manufacturing and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines across the world. And that is one of the topics we will talk about today. And this is the fourth episode in our theme, Global Governance. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. It's very nice to have you here in the studio. To start off with, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, I thought you did a very good job. Uh,
0: Maybe I could add that uh, I'm originally from Albania. My early studies, my undergraduate degree, was not actually on any of these issues. I studied economics because I thought I was good at maths. And you don't always know what you want to do or what you may be interested in when you are an 18-year-old. And I liked that. And I worked in the banking system for a little bit in Albania. And that was very interesting. But I soon realized that there wasn't much opportunity for me to develop intellectually. It was at that point when I was maybe 21 that I decided to undertake postgraduate studies and I did the master's in the UK and then I followed with a PhD and decided in that kind of crucial moment as it turns out now it didn't look like that then but uh, I decided to shift focus a little bit and move more towards international relations and international political economy which is broadly I would say the area within which I work and it's been a really interesting journey intellectually but also personally And it has taken me to places that you mentioned. And uh, now I'm here (laughs) with you in this this room.
1: It's always interesting how things turn out and how you find your way. When I was reading about your current research project here, about the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, I thought immediately about this initiative called Vaccine Forward, uh, which was a fundraising initiative for purchasing and distributing COVID-19 vaccines to the world's poorest economies through the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunisation, Gavi-Covax. I thought about this because every time I got a shot, I made a small donation to this initiative directly afterwards when you have to sit and wait for 15 minutes. So, of course, I'm very interested in hearing more about your current project there and your approach to study this in a more scientific way. Can you give us just a brief insight? So the project's title is
0: Vaccines in Times of Financialization. So I've taken it from Love in Times of Cholera, so a play with that famous novel title. There are two starting premises. One could link quite clearly with what you said in that the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic affected everyone. It's it's difficult to think of groups of people who have not heard of it, for instance, which hasn't been the case before with other kinds of pandemics or diseases that have happened in, in various parts of the world. So everyone somehow got to hear, not just about the fact that we have a pandemic and we are affected by it, but also about the area of vaccines, vaccine research, vaccine development, vaccine manufacturing, access to vaccines. But from this more personal experience of the pandemic and the issue of vaccination, I also had a more professional entry point to it because When I was doing my PhD and immediately after my PhD, which I completed in 2008, I had been studying issues related to access to medicines. Earlier, when you gave your NICE presentation, you mentioned that I had my research related to intellectual property rights. And I looked in particular at how, particularly patents, there are other kinds of intellectual property rights, but patents in particular, how they affected and still affect access to medicines around the world, and I had continued that line of research post-2008. So I had studied, to some extent, global health governance and particular issues within that. So when the pandemic hit, and particularly when first vaccines came online and, and people started getting vaccinated, I wanted to return <laughs> to that issue again. So this project is, is a way of revisiting that research area of global health governance the way in which health issues are dealt with in the context of financialization. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to get
1: into the details of this. Interesting. You mentioned some things about your research, but if you're supposed to sum it up a bit briefly, what is your research about?
0: I suppose I would summarize my research profile by saying I'm an international political economist and that's a field which brings together the social the political the economic it wraps them together when you identify a problem and you try to analyze it it's never just an economic issue it's never just a political issue it's never just a social issue but you're committed to to studying it understanding that this issue is definitely in the middle of these three structures which interplay with each other. So you try to understand how the economic, the social, the political interact in, in making the problem as we face it now and then the way in which it may or may not get resolved down the line. So that's broadly speaking the general field within which I work. And <laughs> there are a lot of people who work in this field and we address very, very different issues. And my entry point, as I said earlier, was precisely with regard to access to medicines There was a very big debate in the late 1990s and early 2000s about how patents in general and patents for medicines affect the ability of groups and patients in different parts of the world to access such patented medicines. And I suppose the clearest examples of how patents might restrict access to medicines related to HIV, AIDS, drugs, for instance, antiretrovirals and others. But that was the most visible one at that point in time, and it was quite People could understand that you have HIV-AIDS, you need antiretrovirals to live, but they were quite expensive. At that point, they were about uh, anywhere between ten to $14,000 per person per year. And that amount of money, it's out of reach for many people, not just for poor people in poor parts of the world, even for other groups of people in other parts of the world which do not define themselves as necessarily poor. So I've studied, as I said, this interaction between patents and access to medicine, global health more generally. And then I started to get more and more interested in various actors I could see involved in these conflicts in global governance, in global health particularly. And that took me towards India and Brazil because I noticed that whenever there were negotiations or contests within different international fora, whether it was the World Health Organization, WHO, whether it was the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, or World Trade Organization, the WTO, very often things didn't move until and unless India or Brazil and or other countries got involved. So I wanted to understand why these two countries were so important and what were the domestic underpinnings of their positions which they took in in these various fora that I mentioned. And then more recently, still within the same field that I mentioned at the start, I've been focusing my attention more specifically into this process of financialization. I've always had this attention to, to the knowledge economy, to the role that knowledge plays in the current economic system. Of course, knowledge has always been part of any economic system. But what is different, what has been different in the last 40, 50 years is that knowledge and the way in which it's produced and the way in which it's uh, appropriated is much more fundamental to our economic system particularly in the more advanced parts of the world economy than it used to be before and it is in that context that intellectual property and patents are so important because they allow their holders the title holders to monopolize control over this kind of knowledge and get economic income out of them so i've always had that interests on the knowledge economy and intellectual property rights But more recently, that has expanded to include financialization. And that's quite a mouthful to say, but it basically, very simply, refers to a variety of processes. They appear differently in different contexts, of course. But at the core of these processes are undeniably the rise of financial assets, the rise, the increasing number of financial actors that are more and more active and dominant and uh, central to the world economy and to national economies as well. So there's more of them, and they have bigger pockets, if you like, deeper pockets, if you like. And financialization refers to this growth of this sector, financial sector, which has always been there, of course, but now this has expanded. And it's not just that it has expanded, but the kind of logics and the values that operate within the financial sector, they have been permeating other sectors of the economy that are non-financial. So productive sectors like the pharmaceutical sector for instance so these financial investment logics promote the productive sectors economy but not just that they also promote the social sphere the way in which for instance pensions are organized education infrastructure so it's like this is what financialization refers to it's of course finance has always been a central part of the of any economic system <laughs> clearly But there has been a step change in certain in the last two decades, but uh, it started before, of course, where we've seen this explosion of financial assets and the way in which, as I say, they are transforming not just the economic fabric, but the social fabric as well. So this is my more recent interest in financialization. And hence, we can bring my interest in the knowledge economy and in health and financialization together in this project
1: on vaccines in times of financialization. So since this is an episode within our theme global governance, how does your research relate to the governance of global health?
0: Global health, it's quite a complex area of global governance. As soon as I say that, I realize that all global governance areas are quite complex. And that's because there's a multiplicity of actors that takes place. Although in most areas of global governance, you can identify an organization that you can point at and say, ah, yes, the World Health Organization is the key organization in global health, for instance. Oh, yes, the World Trade Organization is the key organization when it comes to global trade and so on. This is a very simplistic picture of what global governance of a particular issue area is. So global health, let's take global health governance since we are talking about that. You can define that very generally as a sort of constellation of actors, state actors, of course, but non-state actors as well, that come together to find solutions for specific global health problems. It could be a pandemic. It could be regulations to do with tobacco control. It could be hazardous waste and the problems that come with that. It can be sharing genetic material related to viruses, for instance, and so on. So you can think of various global health issues like immunization of children and so on. So global health governance refers to the way in which state and non-state actors come together to create solutions, to find solutions to these problems. And this is a very generic and very broad definition that most people will not have a problem with because it's, oh, it's so broad. And so if the way in which I've laid it is, it can also sound as apolitical. Yeah, they come together, they try to find a solution. But it's deeply political because these actors that constitute global health, they are not equal. They have different power capabilities, of course. They have different endowments, if you want to use that word. Not, they're not equally powerful. <laughs> they have different ideologies. They have different interests. They have different values, different ways in which they think a particular issue should be addressed. And so when I say that they come together to find solutions for a particular global health problem... By solution, I don't mean that they all agree and then there is a solution, but that's what they come up with. And what they come up with is the outcome of this contest in which various, very, very different actors are involved. And the solution that they find is by no means consensual. It's just that that has won the day, as it were, as the preferred solution. So that's a more generic definition of what it refers to. And it's quite complex because... Although we refer to it as global governance, it's, it's not up there. Basically, it's all these actors that operate at the global level in, in, in multiple fora. But it goes all the way down to the local level where these initiatives are then implemented on the ground. could be even the village uh, level. You, know, you can imagine a, a village ravaged by Ebola, for instance. And then it feeds back into this very, very high level, which is what we have in mind when we refer to global health. If we look historically... Uh, global health has oscillated between two tendencies. It's like a pendulum between these two ends. One of them is the more, let's call it the health as a human right sort of end. One that says that, uh, yes, global health is important. The way to achieve it is that health is a human right, that everyone should be able to enjoy the highest possible level. And to achieve that, then every state, individually and together, should invest in their primary healthcare system, offering, ideally publicly funded, offering everybody access to healthcare services. And then the other end is the one in which the pendulum has been stuck in the last 40 years, maybe from the 1980s onwards, which is is a move away from this, saying basically the idea is that this is too complex. Countries are so different. They are in such different levels of economic and social development and developing such primary healthcare systems. It's a great idea in principle, but it's it's such a complex problem. And we need solutions now for say ebola, for malaria, for polio, for COVID nineteen. So we can't wait. The idea is until the systems are developed. Now we need a solution. So the other side of this pendulum is, as I say, where we are stuck now, which can be characterized by this top-down vertical approaches. So this is the paradigm. Verticalized pharmaceutical solution, which means we can't change the way people live, we can't change their income. Well, it can be changed, but it needs time and it's very complex. So what we can do is bring the right vaccine, bring the right drugs, diagnostics, whatever it's needed um, to deal with this specific problem. This is what the situation was when the pandemic hit, which was why we got yet another of these top-down solutions, which was COVAX, uh, you mentioned in the very beginning, basically. But it's also wrong to think as global health governance is just a self-contained area. Of course, it relates to other aspects of global health, uh, the most visible of which is trade and the governance of trade, global governance of trade, and the global governance of intellectual property rights, for instance, which is what I was studying earlier on. So you can come up with very nice initiatives and ideas within global health. But if you then can't afford these medicines because they are patented, this is where the trade, world trade governance and the intellectual property governance comes into play, then you've done nothing, basically. So it's not just one thing that pertains just to global health. They are all interrelated. And more recently, we have this idea of One Health, which became even more powerful as a paradigm with a pandemic, basically saying that we'll have this pandemic is not surprising and we'll have more and more of them because the way in which human and non-human life interact with each other. Uh, and the idea of One Health is that you, you can't just deal with human health uh, as a separate issue. You have to look at it in, the, in this broader context of how we as humans share life and nature with the other animals and other life forms of life that exist. I think I would just bring home the point that health is political, even though we tend I would like to think of it as, as something that is unaffected by politics in that, for instance, everybody's health is equally valuable and everybody should have access to health. Ideally, being healthy is so, so important to enjoying anything else that one thinks as being part of our catalogue of human rights. As somebody said more than a century ago, I'm paraphrasing virtually, health is politics by other means.
1: And now you work with this new project looking at the distribution and governance of the COVID 19 vaccine. And I mentioned the COVAX initiative. We can just listen to a small clip. When the world has safe and effective COVID 19 vaccines, how can we make sure they reach the people that need them most? Today, there are many vaccines in development, most will fail. For those that could succeed, governments are under pressure to secure supplies for their populations. If governments compete for vaccines, most countries could miss out. This is not only bad for countries that cannot secure their own supplies. It's bad for us all, as no one is safe until everyone is safe. Yes, so no one is safe until everyone is safe was the slogan of this initiative that I also donated money to. Any thoughts on this to start off with? I mean, yes, it it makes sense. Whenever uh, you have a
0: contagious disease, it's hard to argue against that, that no one is safe uh, unless everybody else is safe, in this case, vaccinated. In practice, it's not this principle that guided efforts towards distributing vaccines when they were most needed. So initially COVAX, it was supposed to be like a club of clubs, which would be one purchaser for all countries in the world effectively. In a way, you could see why this is appealing because you, you have this centralized purchasing mechanism which could, in principle, negotiate lower prices. And they had ideas about how to distribute that. Every country would get a certain amount to vaccinate their 10%. And they, each country could decide themselves whether they were going to vaccinate first their healthcare workers or their more vulnerable. It didn't enter into who you should prioritize, but Every country would get enough to vaccinate 5% and 10% and 20% and so on and so forth. So in principle, it was supposed to be a scheme that would be based on solidarity, on equality, of course. precisely this idea that it doesn't make sense to that you kind of vaccinate a particular population, at 80% within a locality, but then people move on, out, in and out, and then it, they bring the disease back and so on. So from that perspective, it made sense. But in reality, it didn't work like that, as we know. The idea that somehow nations, particularly the wealthier one, would withhold from using their economic power to buy vaccines enough to vaccinate their populations. The idea that this wouldn't happen this time around, given that it had happened many times before, when we had, for instance, a swine flu in 2009, right? That exactly the same thing happened. It was a very good scheme, but which didn't take into account the hard politics that underpins global health I was saying earlier. Global health is politics by other means. So the idea that somehow COVAX would work without taking measures to counter this kind of dynamics was bound to fail, wasn't it? Um, And in fact, what happened was that developed countries committed to COVAX in principle. They pledged some money towards it, but at the same time, they entered into agreements with the pharmaceutical companies. In the beginning... Quite a few of them, because it wasn't clear which one would be successful, but um, they hedged their bets, as it were, another financialized technique, like you have a portfolio of assets and see which one gives you a yield, a particularly good yield. And as we know, they in the end ended up with uh, doses to vaccinate their population three, four, five times over when other countries had received almost nothing. But the, the COVAX itself had no means to counter this when it was designed By the same actors, by the same countries. Obviously, they didn't want to limit their freedom to do so, to go precisely down this route. Over time, COVAX leadership itself made more and more concessions to this developed country so as to keep them on board, saying, okay, you can keep your doses. You can buy your own if you want, (laughs) you know. Okay, you can give us your extra doses that you don't want now. So it became from a solidaristic proposal, a club of clubs. We buy for everybody you became into more of a charity. Okay, you give us your extra doses so we can send them to such and such places.
1: So I suppose it was another failed experiment in global health. So now in your current research project, you're looking a bit closer at the financialization of the vaccine and distribution and everything around it. So how will you go about doing this, actually? (laughs) It's quite a broad field of research,
0: absolutely. And uh, I've thought of approaching it in two parts. So there is the bigger issue of the financialization of global health. And that affects vaccines, but that's only one element of that. Global health is about so much more, of course. So in this part, in one of these two parts, uh, I'm interested in understanding how these financial values and investment logics permeated the area of global health. I want to understand the historical shift that occurred. It seems that... When they, already in 2000, when they negotiated the millennium development goals, it was a clear understanding then that to achieve this development goals, official state money, donor money was not going to be enough and they needed to tap into private investors' money. And then there was a a more recent reiteration of those in the sustainable development goals, of which one is specifically focused on health And the idea here is even more clearly from 2010 onwards is that there's a huge gap between what we need to reach the health SDG. So this could be, I think it's about 200, 300 billions per year to reach that, just the health uh, sustainable development goal in low and middle income countries. And the whole gap to reach all SDGs everywhere in the world, it runs in, I don't know, three trillion per year. So it's a lot of money. And it's a clear sense that there's no way official state donors would fill this gap. So the chances of reaching these goals, whether individually, the health one, or all of them across the world is practically zero unless you tap into financial sector pockets, investors, basically. At the same time, as a result of financialization that I mentioned earlier that has been ongoing since the 80s, but particularly has taken root more more fundamentally in the last two or three decades... The result of this is that we have a mountain of financial assets and investors who are looking for investment opportunities. So if I'm not mistaken, in 2020 or 2022, the value of financial assets was five times world GDP. You have this mountain of financial assets looking looking to be invested. So there is a demand and supply issue here. So there is there's a need for money to invest in this. Social programs, social sustainable development goals, one of which is health, as I said. But there's also investors who are looking around and thinking, not very many investment opportunities are coming up because it's so much bigger than the whole world GDP, as I said. So, this were the underlying processes in the background. And global health gradually, or perhaps also gradually, in the last 10 years or so, became transformed into some form of investment frontier. And I want to understand how this happened. So this is the process which broadly I refer to as the financialization of global health. Because now more and more initiatives, when one looks around in global health and you look into what initiatives there are and how they are organized, inevitably they include private finance blended in some form or way with public money. But we don't really understand how they work. And we don't really know the extent to which... The private investors are privatizing profits, so to speak, and socializing the risks and the costs of these investments. So this is one area that I'd like to look into in more detail. That's the first part. And the second part is more specifically to do with vaccines. And again, I want to understand how vaccines became like a fundamental tool to deal with global health problems. They weren't always like that. If one casts the gaze in the 1950s and 60s, they were understood as just one thing that you did amidst a number of other measures you had to take to deal with health nationally and globally. But now they have become quite central, and it's not simply because we had COVID-19 recently. It's been a historical progression there where vaccination, particularly childhood vaccination, but then more recently all sorts of vaccination strategies have been proposed as one of the main tools to deal with global health issues. So it goes beyond infectious diseases, for instance, developing a cancer vaccine and other health problems, which we don't think of as as being caused by a virus. The hope is that vaccines could provide the means to deal with other health issues. So vaccines have become like the preferred tool to deal with so many global health issues. And I think this is a trend that will, assuming nothing changes, that will continue to expand in the future. But at the same time, it's one of the first areas where you have the creation of these partnerships, where you have more and more state and non-state actors and mixtures of money coming from the private sector and the public sector, often with a view to making money. I mean, obviously, this merger of donations with public money is not new in public health. What is new is that they are blended together with a view to making a profit, and that is new in global health. We have always had some mixture of private money donations and state donors bringing money to specific, to address specific issues. But the profit motive wasn't there. But now it's there. in different mixture, of course. And that's where the financial logic comes in. Because, of course, I'm going to bring this money as a financial investor. But I need a return. That's what changes once the sectors get involved. And vaccination, as I started saying just a bit earlier, was... Childhood vaccination was one of the first areas where this blending kind of emerged in global health in the 90s. So I want to contextualize the emergence of COVAX and COVID-19 vaccines and so on in this longer historical process uh, where vaccines became as a preferred tool within global health, but also one of the first areas where we see this blending of different logics of the public health logic with the financial return logic, which is something that financial actors bring with them inevitably.
1: Yes. So for the next pandemic, what can we learn?
0: Well, I suppose uh, one thing that I hope is clear from what I've been saying about global health is that the way in which it's currently governed is deeply problematic and uh, woefully inadequate for dealing with any pandemic, including the one we just, I hesitate a little to say, came out of because people are still getting infected and and, uh, people who live with long COVID, so I hesitate to say the pandemic we just left behind. But it's clearly the case that having a global health governance edifice, which is constructed on the basis of these vertical solutions, it just doesn't work because over the years what this has generated is a, a lack of attention to the basic primary healthcare system in various countries, in all countries actually, including in the wealthier countries. This was the the main problem. They had no capacity to deal with the number of patients coming through their doors with COVID and then with other diseases as well, which obviously didn't disappear. And obviously we can't blame global health for the negligence of adequate investment in healthcare systems across the world, but certainly hasn't helped. that global health governance is predominantly of this nature, vertical solutions on a specific disease without paying attention to how that affects the strength of our healthcare system. So it seems to me the clearest thing to learn is to invest a lot more on on healthcare systems themselves and on prevention and all the training that is required for that, of course. But surely we could start one step earlier and think about how to minimise the chances of yet another pandemic. And this will require thinking beyond the global health completely and revisiting this relationship we have with nature which obviously is very problematic currently. And as I say that, I know that that is perhaps the least likely to happen because it requires fundamental changes across so many levels. But surely that is the most safe way of thinking about the next pandemic. How can we minimize those risks that would require minimizing interaction between wildlife and humans and that will require us already stopping the deep encroachment we've made as humanity in general into the nature But as I say, that's quite a long shot, to be honest, because I don't see the signals out there that we are rethinking this relationship. So sooner or later, another pandemic will will emerge. So what we have learned, I think, from COVID-19, apart from what I said, is to help more countries to develop not just their healthcare systems, but also their manufacturing capacities, their R&D capacities, and that is happening to some extent already as a result of COVID-19. There are efforts to build manufacturing capacities and research capacities in various African countries, for instance, Latin America as well. And in a way, it's, it to some extent, is turning back the clock because many of these countries did have some productive capacities in the past in the pharmaceutical sector, and they all got lost as a result of historical process in the 80s and 90s and, and so on. But surely we need more of that so that we're not in a situation where only f- four or five companies have the rights to producing a particular vaccine and there are not enough manufacturing capacities, or they're not willing to share their technology with more producers to make more medications available. But that requires changing a number of rules, not just within global health, but as I said in this other global governance fora, which are adjacent and related to it, trade rules, uh, intellectual property rules, perhaps we can start thinking now rather than wait for the other pandemic and in the midst of that start to negotiate some sort of major rule change. Perhaps we should, we, I mean, our leaders uh, who are involved in this this negotiation should already think about having mechanisms in place when the next pandemic hit that can be triggered. I think they should be changed even without thinking about a pandemic because they're obviously very limiting and very damaging, as they are, even to address the normal health problems that we have. Yeah, I mean, there are other things to to be done. And uh, even prior to the pandemic, there were efforts, actually, which didn't go anywhere, but there were discussions about having a new R&D treaty between countries. One of the ideas within that was that uh, every country contributed a little bit, a percentage of their GDP, which was progressively increased, depending on how wealthy a country was. And this money was spent towards research and development of neglected diseases or for pandemics and so on. And the idea was to also separate somewhat the um, link between the cost of research and development and the patent. So finding innovative ways of paying off private companies for their efforts towards R&D, but without then in the end having a patent. So you, you found something, you got paid for it, but in the meantime, then knowledge technologies then... Fully available for these diseases or for the next pandemic and so on. So this could have been something that could have worked. It was being negotiated in 2004, 2005, up to 2008 and 9. This idea of a new R&D global R&D treaty. And if it had been successful, we would have been in a better position when the pandemic hit. But this was sidelined precisely because of uh, stronger interests uh, in play. For one, the pharmaceutical sector was very much against this particular R&D, and then strong states which where most of these uh, companies are based, so again, US and and Europe, not all of Europe, but UK, Germany, Switzerland, Sweden, to some extent, particularly because of AstraZeneca and so on, they were against it. And effectively, they they, they killed it, but it didn't need to be that way. It could have been negotiated and would have been in a better place. So So it's not that there is a dearth of ideas. There are many other things we could do, could have done, have been discussed have been negotiated to a certain level but didn't go forward as I said global health is politics by other means.
1: So you're currently a scholar here at SCAS so what are your thoughts and your experience on this multi- and interdisciplinary environment here? I would highly
0: recommend it. It's a really good atmosphere to focus on on a particular project, whatever stage you may be at. I said that I've just started this project, but I know other colleagues, some are in the middle, some have done the research and I'm writing it up as it were. I think its strength is there are two main ones for me, this multidisciplinarity that you mentioned. People work from very different perspectives within different disciplines and, and then within their discipline, they come from different perspectives. So it's really, to some extent, humbling to see so many colleagues from different walks of life, from different uh, walks of academic life, I should say, actually, doing such interesting things. And you, you gain a good perspective about your the little corner of the world you are researching on. And the multiplicity of approaches one can adopt, again, that that makes one humble. And also you start thinking, what other ways are there that I could perhaps adopt, if not directly from what your colleague is doing, but how can I think differently about addressing this question? And I don't think that happens in a particular conversation with the colleague, but over time, the more you hear about their research and different methods and approaches they adopt, It expands your horizon, not that you didn't know this existed out there, but here is a concentrated time where you get kind of immersed in these conversations daily practically, and I think that's quite unique. So that's one key element, and the other one is the calmness of it all and the time you have to think about these issues, which is a luxury to some extent because, as you know, in your academic life within a department, you are juggling a lot of balls at the same time. And that's a skill on its own right. It's not necessarily a negative thing, but it does not give you this time to, to think deeply about a particular issue, which you do get here. So these are the, this kind of immersion in this multidisciplinary atmosphere and the calmness that permits that and the focus that it gives you are two of the main highlights I would like to, on the basis of which I would like to encourage others to apply I definitely and highly recommend it.
1: Thank you very much for being a guest on SCAS Talks and talking to me and the listeners. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. In this episode, you have heard Valbona Musarka. Associate Professor at the Department of Economic History at Uppsala University and Senior Global Horizons Fellow here at SCAS during the academic year of 2022-2023. We have talked about her current research project on the financialization of the COVID-19 vaccine in particular and about governance of global health in general. And this was the fourth episode within our theme, Global Governance. Previous episodes within this theme have featured Bruce Carruthers, who told us more about trust, credit and credit ratings as the basis of a modern economy. David Sipley on constitutional democracy and the corporation. And Jenny Andersson, who talked about neoliberalism in the Nordic countries, developing an absent research theme. And these are episodes 10, 11 and 15, if you want to listen. The list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing, reflecting the multi-interdisciplinary research environment at SCUS. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went on to feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everyone. Find your favorite topic or surprise yourself with something new. Our two upcoming new themes are artificial intelligence and the Anthropocene. Stay tuned for that. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend SCARS Talks to your colleagues and friends. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. SCARS Talks is available on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify and most podcast apps. I would like to thank Valbona Moussaka once again for talking to me. And thanks to you for listening. Bye for now.